cheaper than our producer's underage sister, edgier than the stuff showed on late night television. Newer than Kim Kardashian's ex, live from Orlando, it's Crazy Train Radio. Actually, guys, we're back out of break here, and what we got, or who we got on the line is probably both known as a wrestler, but more with the current generation known as a trainer, Dr. Tom Pritchard. Tom, what's going on, man? Well, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but I'm just, uh, I'm happy to be here with you today, obviously. Uh, It's, uh, everything is going great. I have a lot of things that are... uh, Look, I'm looking forward to happening, and I'm uh, uh, right in the middle of uh, having things happen as we speak. So things are really good. Well, let's get into what you're current, are currently doing now, because we uh, understand that you were released again this year from being a trainer at FCW. Uh, what have you been doing since your release? Uh, I actually had a curriculum in play. I, I had a curriculum that... Uh, is a one-year guide, more or less, how to train and how to teach what a developmental system might do uh, and go about uh, following. So I had that, and I uh, had an interruption of service, a.k.a. released, fired, however you want to say it, and I decided to publish that and make it available to the public. So uh, during that time, I sold a few books, sold a few curriculums. Uh, I've been writing a blog uh, I'm in the process of writing a book, which is uh, a lot more of a massive undertaking than I thought it would be, just just for the mere fact that I have to make myself sit down and write. So I, I've done a couple camps. Uh, I've done some uh, writing for a show that was uh, took place in Knoxville, Tennessee, September 2nd. And I've been in the middle of talking with uh one or two people let's just say that on on some other projects that i can't really mention by name right now but at the same time uh i've been staying busy it's amazing that even though you don't have a steady gig there's not really enough time in the day to get everything done so between writing a blog uh attempting this book and uh trying to get my website out there, which again is drtompritchard.com. That's D-R-T-O-M-P-R-I-C-H-A-R-D.com. Um, it's kept me pretty busy. So uh, that's kind of what I've been doing, writing the blog, writing uh, another book, and uh, trying to get things going. Great. Well, speaking of uh, since you're no longer working for uh, the McMahons, uh, I, I'm going to throw this out there right away. Are, are you uh, – can you see yourself going and working with your brother over in TNA in some capacity? Well, let's just say it this way. What's possible is done. What's impossible probably will be done. 
I don't rule anything out at this point, uh, but at the same time, I really haven't had any official talks with anybody uh, necessarily about doing that. But at the same time, you have to understand that uh, this being this crazy, crazy business we're in, uh, which is also sports entertainment slash professional wrestling, anything is possible and anything can happen. So uh, I can't say yes, and I sure can't say no. But I will say maybe. Hey, hey the phone, the, if the phone rings, you're obviously going to answer. So. <laughs> well, I, answer, I answered your call, well, didn't This I? is true. So you, you'll, you'll take yeah, any I phone mean, call. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not ruling anything out, quite honestly. So you, you never know what's going to happen. Well, I, well let's uh, do a little backtracking here if we can, Tom, uh, to the beginning of your career. Because obviously, you know, on the Internet, things are goofy, like the wrestling industry. But we actually heard from several sources that you were trained by the Iron Sheik. Would you? Is that pretty accurate? That's yeah, very accurate. Actually, uh, I was working in the office uh, for Paul Bosch, who was a Houston promoter at that time, and uh, the Iron Sheik was known as Mohammed Farouk back then. So, uh, what happened was this. I know we don't have much time, so I'll make it pretty brief. Is I, I was working in the office, and Paul knew I wanted to be a wrestler. Uh, so Gary Hart would come in for the booking meetings every Friday before the show. And Gary would occasionally bring some of the boys in to show the office. And, uh, uh, Paul had an office like a museum. It was, it was an incredible place to, to go buy tickets. Even if you're a wrestling fan, but if you're a wrestling fan and wanted to be a wrestler to actually work there, uh, was incredible. So Paul or, and Gary would have their booking meetings. And uh, there was a football player in town. Don't remember his name. He only lasted two weeks. And Gary brought the Iron Sheik with him to work out with this football player. Well, Paul told me it would be okay if I went down to the Coliseum with these guys and worked out prior to the matches because uh, that night we would have our show. And um, I was Paul's assistant sitting ringside. Paul knew I wanted to wrestle. He told me I was too small. I, I didn't would never make it. And, uh, he, but he gave me the opportunity to go down and the Sheik uh, stretched me for about two months. The football player lasted two weeks, but Cosro kept coming in with Gary and I kept, I was able to go down to the Coliseum with him uh, before the matches. And he would just pretty much beat the living crap out of me uh, just to show me it wasn't easy. And that's, that was my first uh, trainer. And then I started working out with uh, Nick Kozak and Joe Mercer once the Sheik left. And uh, Nick Kozak was a local wrestler. Joe Mercer was an old-time wrestler. And they had a record service in Houston. And they, they allowed me and a young guy by the name of King Parsons to also train uh, after Cosro left, uh, the Iron Sheik left. But, yeah, he, the Iron Sheik did train me. And every time I saw him after that, uh, he would call me his rookie, which I was. I was his rookie. And uh, he, he didn't humble me in the way you hear things that way, but he humbled me by slapping the living crap out of me uh, on many occasions uh, in the Coliseum. Well, and, and anytime I worked with well, him. Well, would you say that kind of earned you, as you were getting your feet wet, earned you respect because he was the one that kind of break you in? I, I don't know if that was the case so much. It's just the fact that I wasn't going to give up. The fact that everybody told me uh, I was too small and, and didn't belong there. I, I think 
I was determined and it was that drive and uh, the passion that I was uh, showing that pretty much earned me the eventually the, the guys I worked with their respect uh, because there were many nights that um, I would get in the ring and an old timer did not like the fact that you had a young punk, especially a young punk about 5'10", uh, buck 85, buck 90, maybe at that age or that stage of the game, trying to get into his business and uh, take his spot. So not everybody was so friendly about it, but I think uh, after a while, once they saw they could beat me up and I wasn't going to come back crying and whining about it, um, I took my lumps, I took my beatings, and I wanted to do this, and nobody was going to run me off. So I, I think, yes, the fact that uh, the Iron Sheik trained me was a good thing. At the same time, I make no illusions about being some shooter or some amateur because I never was. I was a, a performer at best. I know a few things that I can take care of myself, but I'm not by any means a, uh, a Kurt Angle or, or I wouldn't even go as far as to say Jerry Lawler because uh, Lawler's an Iron Man, just, just so you know. But, but speaking anyway, of Lawler, let's I, actually jump into that. Uh, obviously, you know Jerry quite well from your time in Memphis and WWE. Uh, what do you think of what went down uh, 10 days ago or so at this point. Well, obviously it's a miracle, man. I mean, you don't have to believe in anything except the fact that, uh, from my understanding, he was clinically dead for 20 minutes. So my father had, uh, a heart attack and actually during surgery, he died three times on the table. And there was like about eight minutes, uh, where his brain was deprived of oxygen. Here's, the king deprived 20 minutes of oxygen uh, to his brain. So I saw the press conference yesterday, I believe, and uh, he, he, you couldn't even tell. And I think yeah, something obviously uh, had to happen. He, he, the king talked yesterday about he didn't see any bright lights, uh, didn't see any dead relatives or anything like that. He just he, he didn't remember after the first segment. Uh, what happened, and then he woke up in the hospital. So obviously something had to happen, and, and he's here for a reason. Whether you believe in miracles or not, uh, thanks to the fact that Lawler never drank, smoked, did drugs, um, and he had a heart attack right in front of a doctor, so they were able to immediately give him attention, was crucial. Uh, circumstances i mean but how do you explain that being dead for 20 minutes and no brain damage i don't you you can't it's one of those things you can't yeah right that, that, that's what i mean so i i have to i the only thing i can say is uh what a miracle and i'm glad i mean i think we're all glad because uh this just adds to the legacy of jerry the king lawler this just adds to his uh his reputation this just adds to no matter what Lawler does from here on out. Um, he he is invincible, and and that's going to be the myth and the legend. But it's true, and I watched it back so many times to see what happened and see if there was any signs. And there really was only one sign. If you watch it back, uh, I think it was after the first tag team match. He coughs. Lawler coughs and kind of you know hits his chest like he has indigestion. 
but he doesn't wrestle like a man about to have a heart attack. He's not talking like a man who's about to have a heart attack. He's he's the king, and uh, he he's the king now in more ways than one. So he cheated death. Yeah, because and, and not that you want to ever see somebody have a major health issue like that, but from everybody we've talked to on and off air, it's one of those. Uh, if you're gonna have a serious issue, like you said, it happened right there in front of a doctor, right place, right time, and he's still with us, luckily. Yeah. So. Yeah. If if there ever is a right place and right time, that was a, that was it. You're yeah. right. Well, back to your career, though. Uh, actually, would you say that you had your best success in the southeast there? Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, I was. Uh, I, I think. You know, growing up in the South and uh, traveling to territories um, around the Southeast was it was was pretty successful in not only happiness, but uh, I guess career wise. Uh, I also really started out in California. The LaBelle's. Uh, yeah. And eventually in 1984, I made my way to Portland and uh you know, again, if you read my, my blog on drtompritchard.com, I have a story up right now about Portland, and I think uh, we were talking earlier about something concerning Portland, Oregon, and uh, some of the mythological uh, stories you'll hear and some of the mythological people there. And I say mythological because if you heard them, you might say, ah, that's, there's no way. But I actually witnessed so many things up there that I'd heard about throughout the years. Um, and quite honestly, it was so cool to see it with my own eyes and to experience it because uh, you, wrestlers have a tendency to, let's just say, exaggerate at times. And there was no exaggeration on, on a lot of a lot of the things I saw in Portland. Yeah, uh, the, and the guy you were referencing we were talking about, uh, you would say mythological would be uh... – Don Elwin's brother, Elliot, who ran some shows as well. Well, Elton, yeah, Elton was more of a cartoon character come to life. He was an old boxer, I believe, actually. And he was one of those guys who, uh, he, he liked tough guys. And he liked guys who could really wrestle or really do something. Or if you were an athlete and play football, or let's say if you, if you boxed, you know, Hey, how many fights did you win? And, you know, I boxed a little bit kid and Hey, can you shoot? And, uh, I remember the first night when I was in the Portland sports arena and buddy Rose, Kurt Henning and, and Matt Bourne, all three came to me and said, listen, Elton is going to come to you. He's going to shake your hand, shake, make sure you shake his hand hard, give him a good firm handshake, which, which I always did anyway, that dead fish handshake just never, Never made sense. But he's going to say, hey, kid, can you shoot? And you, you tell him, yes, whether you can or can't, yes. And uh, sure enough, in Eugene, Oregon, um, we walk into this building, and the dressing rooms are literally about as big as a walk-in closet. And when you have four pretty good-sized guys in there, four or five sometimes, uh, it got a little crowded. But Elton came in and said, hey, kid, how you doing? Uh, can you shoot? First words out of his mouth. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, we'll have to get you in there sometime. And at that time, what they did was, what Elton did was, he had a shooting 
champion trophy, an actual trophy. And and Kurt Henning was the uh, champion. And look, again, I make no illusions. I'm no shooter. I, I'm performer at best or mediocre. And uh, so a couple weeks went by. Kurt was on his way out. Elton gave him this nice, beautiful trophy. I remember giving it to Kurt on his last night and Kurt's so proud of it. And I, I think he threw it in the trash on the way out, you know, <laughs> typical Kurt heading uh, fashion. And I think it was shortly thereafter when Elton asked me, he came in the dressing room says, how are you feeling tonight? And I said, great. He says, you feel like shooting? And I said, well, of course. And I'm, I'm working against Scott Ferris, who is a big guy. And there's a picture of him in this blog. The only picture I could find and Scott was a good guy. He just um, was one of those guys that Elton didn't really care for because he, I don't know what it was, but he just didn't care for him. And uh, we went out there and, and I was ready to just get tied up and, and didn't matter to me. And Scott, as the referee called us together, and Scott said, listen, uh, I'm going to put you over in this shoot. No way, man. Goes, no, no. Trust me on this. When I take you down, I want you to sit out and go behind me and you ride me. Okay. You stay on top, man, because you chew for two minutes and whoever was in control for that two minutes, Elton would give the winner an extra $30. Well, okay. When you're making 60 bucks, an extra 30, that's what? Uh, 80. Okay. Or we're 60, no, 70, 80, 90. I'm sorry. I'm a great mathematician. <laughs> Anyway, uh, but after the matches, we would all get paid, and we're, we're all waiting for the payoff. And I told Scott, went over to him and said, thank you very much. All the people have gone. And, and I said, you know, he's not going to buy that. Scott said, trust me. Just trust me on this. Scott went in and got paid. Um, I went in and got paid. And the, the trick was if, for instance, let's just say Scott got 60 bucks. Well, we all got the same amount. Well, if Scott got 60, then I would get um, 30, and then Elton would just give me that, here's that extra 30, kid. So I'd get the same amount of money, I guess, and, I, and we'd still split it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I, I would give Scott 15, and, you know, I would get 15. I, I'd probably wind up on the losing end. The, win, the winner actually – no, I take that back. The winner did get the same amount. You got extra 30. I'm sorry. That was another talent I'm thinking of. Um, but – we would we would split the winnings. No, so if I got thirty, I would give him fifteen, and I'd have fifteen, and uh, I would be the shooting champion, which absolutely nothing. But uh, anyway. Yeah. So uh, anyway, let's uh, do a little fast forwarding again. To you worked for another, uh, I guess you could say, a character at least, Jim Cornette in Smoky Mountain. Uh, yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. I guess you're agreeing with me when I say character with uh, Jim Cornette, that's for sure. Uh, well, all due respect, of course. Yes. Uh, what what can you tell us about Smoky Mountain, your time down there? Um, I've got to say I had a blast with Smoky Mountain. I had a blast working with Jim. I had a blast working with Stan. I had a blast working in that area. I've always loved East Tennessee, and I've always had it, – it's always been a great place uh, uh, for me just because it's one of, one of those places kind of frozen in time, I think. Wrestling fans in the South are, are well, they were anyway. I still, still to this day, I think they're uh, a little more uh, stereotyped. But, you know, 
really, that's the way they are. And uh, Jim's deal in Smoky Mountain was wrestling the way you like it and the way it used to be or something like that. And come to find out, uh, there were very few people that wanted to pay to see wrestling the way it used to be and the way we liked it. So uh, Jim was Jim was a great character. Jim was fun to be around because what you saw on TV and all the promos that he cut on TV would be cut in the locker room. They would be cut in the car. Uh, he would go to Wendy's and order a triple with extra cheese and mayonnaise and grease. And I mean, it was the most, uh, it was an interesting time to have dinner with Jim Cornette. It was an interesting time to, to uh, listen to him go off on something. And, and, and Jim would go off on anything, just give him a topic and he'd, he'd hit it. <laughs> And, uh, I had the best, I mean, it was the greatest time because it was a lot of fun, not a lot of money at that time, but it was a lot of fun. And, uh, I think Jim is still, he might've mellowed out a little bit, but during those days he was balls to the wall and he wanted, uh, wanted perfection. And that's just the way he learned. Well, that's, I think most people would ask for at least, uh, but would you say during your time at Smoky Mountain, cause we know afterwards you ended up first getting hired by the WWE. But is that when they first really noticed your talents with uh, Stan Lane and then Jimmy Del Rey? No, I think with WWE, that was one of those things that uh, was right. It was during a time when Vince was going through the, the trial of the, uh, I think, steroid distribution. And, and it was just winding down or, or about to get wound, wound down. And Jerry Jarrett was in and... Uh, uh, actually, Stan and I had done a uh, WCW pay-per-view fall brawl in July, and we got the call, or yeah, it was July, and we got the call about doing a match with the Steiners in Detroit for SummerSlam in 93, uh, but that was because the, uh, the, I think the steroid trial was still going on, and they were looking for talent looking for various ways to uh, incorporate um, an, Im, an influx of talent, so to speak. And Jim, Jim had talent down on Smoky Mountain. But also, I think the ulterior motive was they wanted Cornette as a spokesman for Yokozuna. So it wasn't so much about the Heavenly Bodies as it was about Jim Cornette, in my opinion. And uh, that's how that came about. That was being at the right place at the right time. But if you remember, it was actually Del Rey and me who got hired. So Jimmy uh, or Stan had already quit after Fall Brawl. Uh, he he had just pretty much had enough enough of being on the road, and he didn't want to travel from the Carolinas to, to Tennessee anymore. He wasn't making that much money, and uh, so we had to find a partner quick. Kevin Sullivan came up with Jimmy Del Rey. And that's kind of how that happened. So I don't think anybody, I mean, I, my brother had been working for WWF at that time for so many years. Uh, they were aware of me. They, they knew what I could do, but they just had no place for me. There was, there was nothing there. And uh, I pretty much resided uh, and resigned myself to working in the South. But again, if fate being what it is, they needed talent and we happened to be the bodies uh, that, that they needed or wanted. And that's how it happened, man. I mean, I wish I could tell you it was a great story. And they said, man, we really need you guys. No, they just kind of took us because they knew Cornette wouldn't come without us. That's my opinion. Okay. Well, you obviously went on to work with uh, 
Chris Candino and a body Donis. Do you have any uh, good good memories with Chris, who's obviously no longer with us as well? Well, with Chris, right? No, I have I have great memories with Chris. I always loved Chris, and I uh, I knew Chris from his early days in Memphis, and then then in Smoky Mountain. Um, but I hated the gimmick. I hated being a body Donna. It was one of those things where um, the heavenly body deal would come to an end. And I called up and said, look, um, if there's any way I could get a job, I'd be willing to do anything at all. And they said, okay. And they called me back and said, how would you like to cut your hair, dye it blonde, and team with Chris as a, a body Donna? And I said, absolutely not. They said, oh, okay, I'm going to the phone. Right there, I said, oh, wait a minute. I better call back and say, absolutely sure. Of course I would, which I did. <laughs> and, uh, oh, man, it was one of those things that, no, I, I wasn't feeling that at all, but it was a job. And that was pretty much when I knew I was miserable and I, it was in a different place in my life, too. But, you know, I couldn't travel with Chris and Tammy because I think they were both at different places in their lives as well. You had on one, one hand... Tammy being Tammy, uh, you know, the, the most downloaded uh, diva at that time. And, and, of course, she knew it, and she let you knew, she, know that she knew it. And, golly, I mean, I've been around some unbearable people, but um, at that time it was pretty pretty uh, tough. So, And I'm sure I wasn't the easiest guy to get along with either. But the Body Donnas was not one of my favorite uh, memories. I love Chris, great kid, and I miss him. Uh, every day, but as far as the gimmick and as far as doing business with uh, Tammy and Chris together was not the ideal circumstances for me. Okay. Well, what ended up uh, making you make the switch from wrestler full-time to uh, training with them? Well, that actually came about when uh, Chris broke his neck in Madison Square Garden. We uh, dropped titles to the Goblins that night, and uh, Chris broke his neck. And was sitting in the hallway. I'll never forget this. Uh, I walked back to the, the dressing room, and he just drops down in in the hallway of the garden. And uh, I went over to him and said, "You okay?" He says, "Yeah, man, I just hurt my neck." Well, you know, Chris never put anything over. And when he went to the hospital in the zoo in New York, they did X-rays. Come to find out, he had a broken neck. And um, it, it was one of those waiting period times where, you know, he had to be out and then, then he got cleared and he was wearing a neck brace to the ring, which I think he did it a couple of times on, on the house shows. And when Vince found out, he, he went ballistic and said, I don't want him wrestling in a neck brace. So he had to take off. Well, during that time of the off period, um, I was in Houston, Bruce was in Houston, my brother, and we went to see a couple schools, a couple guys who had a ring there, and I got in the ring and tried to help some of these guys. Uh, and it was mentioned to Vince that we need to start our own system, the WWE needs to start their own system because there's only WCW out there, and you need to find stars or create our own stars. So out of that training system that Bruce saw me do in Houston, he mentioned it to Vince, and there was an Vince said, how would you like to train people? How would you like to start training people in, in Stanford? 
And I said, what a great opportunity because I knew the body down gimmick was dead. I knew I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't having a lot of fun working anymore. At that time I was 36 years old. It was uh, 1996 and he offered me the opportunity. And there was three guys. It was uh, Mark Henry just coming off the Olympics. Uh, uh, Akam Albrecht, a bodybuilder, a.k.a. Brockus. And then, of course, Dwayne Johnson. And Dwayne grew up in the business. And Pat Patterson had already seen him in Miami and knew he was a star. But we didn't. nobody could tell how big he was going to be. But anyway, I started with those three in the studio in Stanford. And uh, that's how it happened in the summer of uh, 1996. It was just the body down gimmick had run its course. Uh, my time as a wrestler at 36 years old, I kind of knew my body was, my neck was killing me, my back was killing me. And it was a steady gig. And it was something I was looking forward to uh, seeing what door would open next. And that was the one that did. So Well, who would you say, because obviously you just mentioned some interesting names, The Rock, uh, Mark Henry, uh, but who would you say was uh, probably the most interesting student you had that you kind of saw and you go, this guy's got something? Well, I don't know that um, – I don't know that I can just pick one guy, but obviously you knew The Rock just from his, his pedigree of where he came from, uh, his family – his, where his family history uh, kind of told you, you could see that he had passion. You could see that he was good. You could see that he he was going to be something. Nobody could nobody could predict how big he would become. But I think Edge Christian, who already had previous training, um, there there were guys that uh, like Sean Stasiak, who was very interesting. If you've ever do you, do you know Sean by any chance? Sean yeah, Stasiak? he, he uh, worked up at up in uh, WWE as Meat, but he's also a second generation star with his father Stan. Yeah, I didn't know if you if you uh, knew him personally. Oh no, no, I don't know him personally. No. no. Well, he's he's a very interesting fellow. I mean, uh, to say the least. And but you know, I got along with Sean. But there were there were guys like Seamus that came along. Well, we're talking earlier on though. I mean, Edge, Christian, Val Venus. Um, I have to go back and look at some of the earlier guys that, that uh, came through. Most of the guys that came through from 1996 uh, up till 2004 would either come through Stanford or by that time go to OVW or Cincinnati or Memphis. But I had my hands on them uh, one way or another through being the talent development manager or talent development uh, trainer. And I, I wish I could uh, – off the top of my head, tell you who the most interesting ones were, but obviously the most successful ones were uh, The Rock. Mark Henry wound up being a world champion. Nobody ever thought he would do that because Mark Mark uh, didn't necessarily have it in the beginning, but he learned and uh, he found out what he had to do to make it, and he did. So. Okay. Well, what led to your break? Uh, you had a few years. Uh another firing between, I think it was 2004 there and 2007. Uh, what happened there? Uh, well, that was a case of being in the office and understanding how corporate America works and actually applying that are two different things. Uh, once you see, if you've never worked in a corporate environment and I, I never had, but, 
I was always a wrestler and one of the boys, I, I was going to keep that. And you can't, if you're going to work in a corporate environment, you have to become a corporate person. And, um, I used to wear sweatpants. Uh, I used to wear what I would work out in, uh, to the office every day. And I'm on the fourth floor within like literally a hundred feet from Vince McMahon's office. So we were on the executive floor talent relations and I'm looking like this and JR would say something occasionally about it, but never really hold my feet to the fire. He just pretty much accepted it, but I accepted it and I did it because I was trying to keep that identity, uh, being a coach, being a trainer. And that's what your coach or trainer would wear. You know, you're ready at any moment to go to the, go to tracks and go to the gym. Uh, but it was a combination of that and, also, with OVW being the developmental system, I thought OVW was doing a great job. And I still think OVW does a great job. Uh, and at the time, there were others who felt otherwise. And I thought they were trying to sabotage and destroy something good. And I said, said as much when I should have just said, look, this is what my boss wants. This is what I should do. Um, and I didn't do that. So lo and behold, uh, for saying or believing what I believed, uh, it didn't help me any as far as doing what my bosses wanted me to do. So that led to my demise. And uh, sometimes you can speak up, but you have to pick your battles. And I died on the wrong hill. Um, I thought... I thought someone was right, and other people thought someone was wrong. <laughs> and I'll leave it at that. It was, uh, and, and I was wrong for thinking and siding with the wrong team. That's what. Well, happened. did you? Uh, we, if we can ask without naming everybody, but would you say? Uh, could you say Vince was the direct boss you reported to, or was there other people in between? that you talked to well no uh, john laurinaitis was my boss john laurinaitis was the guy who fired me and uh but john laurinaitis was the guy who hired me back too um but john and i had butted heads before and once again i i i learned a valuable lesson uh but at the same time it, it was one of those lessons that i i should have kept in mind um when 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 you have a boss your boss wants it done uh, the way he wants it done in corporate America. I mean, I don't know if you read Forbes or, or any of the business sites, but I do. And I, I, I've tried, uh, as best as I can to live by the corporate credo, which is, <laughs> they don't always want to hear the truth. Uh, but, but you know, sometimes you, you can't hold your tongue if you're a moron like I am. So my, John Laurinaitis was my boss, and we butted heads because he had an idea and he had a vision. Well, I didn't agree with his vision. I didn't agree with his idea, and I told him as much. And uh, the trainers and people down there at the time uh, were reporting to John facts that I felt John wanted to hear that weren't necessarily the truth. And when you call somebody on not telling the truth, they don't like it so much, especially when that's what the boss wants them to 
report on official reports. If you're following me, you know yeah. what I mean? You know, this is what I want. This is what I want you to tell me. Um, in other words, make it fit. Example, you send someone an email saying, um, listen, I can't get anything uh, about what's going on from Tom or Steve. Now, in this email, they say, read between the lines. Okay, the reality is no one's asked Tom or Steve for the information that you're asking this person for. So it's all a game in the sense that, okay, let's set it up where it looks really good corporate-wise because I sent this email to this guy over here saying we can't get the information, but in fact, you've never asked Tom or Steve for the information. Um, so you kind of read that and, and you hear about that and, and then you go, wait a minute, something's going on here. And that's kind of what happened. Uh, you can manufacture, you can manipulate anything you want if you want something done. And I've learned that, I've learned that twice now. So it doesn't necessarily matter how good you are. It doesn't necessarily matter if you're doing the right thing. They want you to do what they want you to do at any cost. Well, let's wrap the, this interview up with one last question. Since we know the guy you mentioned, John Laranotis, is no longer in that position. And uh, apparently Triple H is in that position. From what you know of him, how do you feel he's doing from what you've heard and know of the guy? Look, Triple H is a, is a old school guy. He's a successful guy. I cannot knock Triple H. I can't knock John Laurinaitis. I can't really knock anybody there. But Triple H understands, I believe, this is my feeling, that Triple H does understand the business of, or let me say this, professional wrestling. I don't know if he understands necessarily the business part of it, but Triple H wants people in there that he can relate to, he can rely on, that he can get his information from. Now, once again, the information he's going to get, is it going to be correct? That's all subjective. I guess, because what's correct? What's what's right? What's wrong? Well, it's not really right or wrong. It's just this way or that way. And if he likes it that way, that's what he's going to get. If he likes it this way, that's what he's going to get. But uh, the point is, he, he, he understands wrestling. What he's getting his feet wet now in the, is the business part of it and how many people are going to try and manipulate their way to him and to be in his favor because without having his favor uh you're not going to be there much longer and i know that from experience so well, that's i think he's a smart guy no matter what he he is a very smart guy and he does know what he's doing okay well one last uh time here Plug your website and the training book that you mentioned early in this interview here. Well, again, if you go to uh, drtompritchard.com, that's D-R-T-O-M-P-R-I-C-H-A-R-D.com, uh, there's a curriculum. It's a pro wrestling curriculum. 
And a T-shirt is a badass T-shirt, man. Wanted Dead or Alive, I used to wear in 1980, uh, 1985, excuse me. And a buddy of mine said, why not uh, try it again? Try and uh, it's vintage, limited edition T-shirt. And um, you can check it out anytime. I'm writing, trying to write weekly blogs, and I'm writing a book in the process uh, when I have time. So uh, that's about it. And uh, ah, man, that's it's a lot of things going on though, Adam. I mean, a lot of things that I can. Uh, uh, I wish I could talk about, but at the same time, I'm almost sworn to secrecy. Well, so. when things happen, I'm sure we'll be able to talk to you again, Tom. Thanks a lot, man. Hey, listen, stay on the crazy train because it's only one way out, man, and uh, good way out. Well, thank you so much again, Tom. Anytime. Thank you.